This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Do you want to know how to achieve a free society? Then read my second book, Toward a Free Society, a short guide on building a culture of liberty. You may download the book for free at everythingvoluntary.com or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Just lovely. Just lovely. Ready for a wonderful day of warmth before uh, day after tomorrow we head back up to the North Country. So I'm going to soak in the last little bit of Arizona I can get. Oh, you're down in Arizona right now? Yes. Yes. We took a couple weeks to go down and see the grandkids in Tucson and... uh, one of the guys I work with has a condo in Fountain Hills, Arizona, just kind of on the border of Phoenix. So uh, we stay here for a little while and we come down and just kind of have working vacation. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I've uh, been to the Phoenix area a couple of times. Um, once in the dead of s- the dead, the heat of summer. <laughs> uh, once more, a little bit more in the fall was a bit nicer. Yes, certainly don't want to be here for four or five or six months of the year. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Well, um, let's just, I guess, get right into it. Um, so I'm just trying to remember you originally contacted me maybe almost a year ago, right? About, uh, Carl Watner and what was going on there. Yes. Yes. Um, Carl, uh, was, oh, we were just talking about people who are active in voluntarism and who are, who are currently making a difference and kind of squared away. And he brought your name up and said, Hey, I've heard of this guy. Um, and you know, he might be worth being in touch with. So that's kind of how I first heard about you. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, um, so I, man, this is, this is probably a, a while ago now. Well, okay. So I published or republished a couple of his articles in my first book. And so I had contacted him then just to, to make sure he didn't have any issues with me doing that. So that kind of started that. And then I don't know, about a year later, maybe a year and a half later, I was I was publishing large print editions of libertarian right. books, and so I I I think he charged me like fifty bucks for a license to to publish his first volume of I Must Speak Out in large print. And so yeah, ah, I had, okay, had a, yeah, I had a couple of instances of communicating with him. So that's probably that's probably why I was on his radar. But yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious yeah, how did how did you um, get to know him and and uh, uh, where did that begin? You know, I don't even recall how we first came to know each other, but we, we got to know each other better when I 
submitted my How I Became a Voluntarist uh, article for his website. And by the way, they're at uh, voluntarist.com, actively seeking uh, either written accounts of, of how a person became a voluntarist and also video accounts or audio accounts. We'll, we'll upload anything. Uh, and when I say we, I am now uh, a trustee for his estate. Uh, he is either on his deathbed or has died recently. Haven't heard from his family, but his uh, mm. time is very short if it hasn't already come. And uh, Dave Gotesi is the primary trustee, and then I'm the secondary uh, to kind of keep his website and his life's work going. Yeah, so um, if I understand, he had some form of cancer. Is that right? Yes, yes. And he's uh, over a year now. He's had it. It's just been incredible. He's really into stoicism. <clears throat> and so as a stoic, uh, he has just set the example for how to address a, a challenge in life. He's just so matter of fact about it and uh, just very, I don't know, very calm and just getting his affairs in order. I guess, I guess this would be a good time to sell the business before I die and make it easier for, for my wife and, uh, and for the kids. And so he sold his business and uh, continued to just work hard to get the uh, second edition of I Must Speak Out uh, finished. And we just two days ago uh, got it published, uh, the Kindle version on Amazon, and uh, currently looking for a publisher for his uh, for the version of the book. Yeah, yeah, I got to check that out. Um, wow, so so you don't even know if he's if he's passed at this time or not? No, I don't know. Uh, and it's you know it's one of those things that uh, I don't want to bug his family about right. it and, and call. And as of a couple weeks ago, he was no longer able to speak or communicate in ways that we're familiar with. Uh, you know, I suspect that that folks who are uh, in the dying process in the final stages can probably comprehend more of what's going on around them than uh, some of the blabbermouths standing around them might realize. Uh, so I don't know if he's still able to hear and comprehend what's going on around him, but no longer able to email or talk or anything like that. You mentioned his stoicism. And when you said that, I think you just made a connection for me because stoicism is something that I've been uh, studying. And, and in fact, my second podcast, I, f I feature ep episodes going into different stoic teachings and sort of adding commentary to them and talking about them. And just when you said that, when you just connected him with his stoicism, I remember that probably probably the first time I even heard about the stoics was in his fundamental Fundamentals of Voluntarism essay towards the end where he talks about, you know, the the a stoic being able to go inside their own mind and even retain some of dignity, even if they're, you know, in, you know, in a prison, that type of, that type of thing. Right, right. And I, I think that was probably my first introduction to the whole idea um, that I, I, I'd forgotten about, but yeah, that was him that, that did that. Yeah, I, I yeah. asked him, uh, I don't know, a year or two years ago, something like that. He, he had the book Render Not. Uh, against taxation, uh, against giving it to easily or willingly handing over uh, money to the government. Um, I, I guess it's still under coercion, so it's not willfully. But uh, anyway, this book kind of gave me the impression as I just glanced at it that he might be a Christian. So I mentioned to him that that we were different in that way because I'm I'm not a theist. And he said, "Well, what makes you think that?" And he says, "Actually, he says if I'm gonna if you're gonna put another label on me other than." interested in voluntarism, probably stoic would be the best one. And that was my introduction 
Uh, you know, I'd heard of it, but I, I wasn't familiar. Yeah. And then I thought I liked it until the last few months when I started looking into it more. And now I'm thinking, yeah, like a third or a quarter of it. But there are a lot of things the Stoics, some of the Stoics say that don't really fall in line with what I've come to believe in life. Um, I'm trying to listen to them with an open mind. But I'm in Meditations right now uh, by Marcus Aurelius. And just, it isn't my thing. I want it to be, but just not loving his perspectives. Yeah, that's an interesting book. It's really just like a, I have it as well. Um, anyway, it's on my shelf, but, and I've only read, you know, a handful of pages, but it's really kind of like a, a thought of the day type of thing. It's just, it's something. And then the next paragraph doesn't have anything to do with the previous paragraph or the next. It's just sort of a thought of the day type of thing, you know, so there's nuggets here and there. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't read it thoroughly. Um, I, for my, um, for my podcast, when I'm when I'm doing my Stoic episodes, which is about every third episode, um, I actually just pull something out of this one by it's the Daily Stoic. Yes, yes Ryan Holiday, he's great. Yeah, so I he, pull, he really makes it accessible for for a guy like me who's uh, I don't know that that struggles with some of it. He kind of helps with the tidbits of it. Yeah, so he'll so each of the it's it's, it's a calendar. So I just use a random date generator. I grab a random date. I'll read the the quote by whatever master, you know, Seneca or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, and I'll add my commentary to that. Then I'll read their commentary and then I'll jump over to the Stoicism subreddit and I'll find a really good thoughtful post in there by, you know, just some random person, random modern amateur Stoic like myself, and I'll read that and add their commentary. So those, those are really fun episodes. I like making those, but um, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting philosophy to include. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I've definitely found it very interesting. So um, I'm just curious. Let's talk about kind of how you got into this whole voluntarism thing. Where where does that begin for you? I first was given uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, the Ayn Rand novel, probably when I, in my early twenties, uh, and I finally read it another five or whatever years after that, and it made good sense to me. But I didn't really consider myself to be political. Uh, or, you know, really interested in that kind of stuff. I'm like, I just read it and I'm like, yeah, that makes good sense. And then uh, I was contacted by somebody. I was on an objectivist meetup group uh, where I had my name that I was interested if one ever came to my little town. And uh, a guy contacted me and said, hey, have you heard of a guy named Ron Paul? He's kind of similar to the objectivist thing. So through that, I, I became my local county uh chairman for the Republican Party and went to Ron Paul rallies and, and really got into that in 2007. And then uh, kind of as uh, going through that process, that that friend who remains a minarchist to this day, I kind of credit him with helping me uh, go full tilt uh, voluntarist. He, he sent me uh, two things. The first thing he sent was the joke, uh, you know, what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? Uh, with the answer being usually about six months, but if you're really slow like me, three years. And I heard that. I thought, oh, that's awesome. I love that. And then he sent me another link that was Tom Woods and Doug Casey debating uh, is limited governments an oxymoron. And those two things really kind of started my journey. Uh, and then I was interested in logic, and I looked it up, and somehow came upon the the anarchist formerly known as a, or, or the podcaster formerly known as an anarchist, uh, Stefan Molyneux, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and consumed Jeez. a couple thousand hours of his stuff, and uh, yeah, that was kind of my 
turning point. And then, of course, got into Larkin Rose and and love Doug Casey, love Walter Block, uh, Rothbard, of course, the the granddaddy of everybody. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So th- these are these are fairly recent dates you're giving me 2007 2008 um what was going on before all of that where were you at politically just curious where 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 did you come from like what had you been doing the first couple decades of your life i was a police officer i worked as a a jail deputy in the sixth largest jail system in the country and was just completely oh i loved worshiping flags at that point um really believed that needed to have a strong military and a strong police and and the, the the judges should just you know find everybody guilty and and I was just a card carrying statist uh, I, I didn't really pay much attention to politics at that point uh, it just didn't really seem to be that relevant I just wasn't even in my mind um yeah didn't didn't even enter my mind uh, until the Ron Paul period <clears throat> So, okay, so I'm curious about this. How how long were you a police officer? Uh, almost 10 years. Okay. What are there um is there anything from that time that you liked? I mean, was there any redeeming qualities of that, I guess? <laughs> you know, I, police officers are selected based on on certain criteria. You go through a whole psychological battery of tests and an interview. You go to see a psychologist, you have all the the, the various personality testing kinds of things. So in order to become a police officer, you have to have a certain personality type, which of course now embarrasses um, <laughs> that I that I fit into that, that I was accepted. But I found that I was not like the other little children. I was different. I was special. And there were very few other people that kind of shared my quirkiness and weirdness. Uh, I, I remember we did a training and, and we did some color coding for the different kinds of people. And out of 40 something people, uh, I and one other person, we were the green color and nobody else was green other than just the two of us. And I, I suspect he's no longer in law enforcement either. There's just, it's a different personality type. Uh, but getting back to your, your question, yeah, I, I gained a lot from it. Uh, I was, I got wonderful training in interview and interrogation and uh, hostage negotiation and uh, got to be on a SWAT team, got to be a, a entry team and, and then ended up on the sniper team, sniper team leader and, and got to be a, I was a crimes against children detective. And, uh, part of that was learning how to do child forensic interviewing and then interrogating the perpetrators as well. So there was a little bit of good work that I did. Uh, but overall, I mean, after the whole experience now, uh, I, I think pro- having a protector, uh, a job as a protector, I, I think, the necessary job in society. Uh, the big guy that walks around with a stick and, and treats everybody nicely, but you don't want to get on his wrong side. I think that's a, a handy type of person to have, but I just don't think it was right for me to accept stolen money in order to be that person or to use the state's system. Uh, well, and it's it's a little bit more than that too. I mean, there's a lot of um, a lot of laws that you're enforcing that are not not really crimes, right? Exactly. Yeah. I recall once the old Sarge says to me, come on, kid, let's go. And we jumped in his car and he took me on a code enforcement call. And here we are, two armed policemen 
uh, walking into a private business. And the violation was that there was supposed to be 750 square feet of, I'm going to get this word wrong, but Ariorium or Aviorium or something, just where there's greenery and nothing for sale. Uh, in the as part of the display of the store, and that was part of the code, building code, is that they had to have that. Well, they had a wagon wheel, which was part of their uh, thing that was for sale, and it had a price tag on it. And so that was therefore the violation was they had a wagon wheel in the 750 square feet that were supposed to be uh, reserved for just beauty or or nature or whatever. And here here we are, two armed thugs telling them, hey, you have to move that out of this area. And it was obviously a competitor that had called them in and ratted them out, just playing the whole my cops bigger than your cop game. Yeah, I was going to say maybe maybe the bigger problem here is that somebody felt somebody felt the need or the desire to call the police in that situation. That that seems to me to be like closer to the root of the problem. You know what I mean? Yes. And had we not existed, then that competitor would have had to do something other than using the his hired muscle, the cops he would have had to actually maybe provide a better service or a better product uh, or lower his prices or somehow other otherwise compete uh, with yeah. this store who, but this is just a tactic to, to put the hurt on a competitor. I think. Yeah. I think, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was uh, maybe John Stossel, maybe Jeffrey Tucker said something to the effect that capitalism's biggest enemies are capitalists. Interesting. <laughs> because they're, they're the ones who are, Constantly trying to eventually, sooner or later, get into the corporatist game and put their competitors out of business or prevent competition in the future by lobbying and getting in bed with the state and, you know, getting getting favorable laws passed and regulations passed and whatnot. Um, it doesn't seems that it doesn't take long for a a new industry. And I think I think at first it's probably like um, if you don't if you don't get in bed with the state then some competitor will and you know you want to be part of that conversation when that happens you don't want to be left out right you want to have a say in what goes on you know i think microsoft learned this the hard way back in the 90s and after that they built an office in washington and now they have you know lobbyists and stuff but before that they didn't you know because they didn't they didn't realize they'd need to so it's like i think that's where it starts but then sort of the principle changes and it becomes offensive. You know what I mean? Not just defensive. And then new right. industries and come up and they're told by veterans and in older industries, you've got to do this. And it just sort of snowballs. Anyway. I agree. The only thing I would argue vehemently against would be naming that thing that's happening, capitalism. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that sullies a beautiful name that has nothing – the private means of production, uh, the, the private ownership of capital. Like that's, that's just, I, I think there's nothing in the world evil or bad about that. It's only when that's combined with rent seeking or whatever kind of, you know, as yeah. you mentioned, getting in bed with the, the government. And that's a, it's a toughie. Um, it's a toughie in business to know what you do and what you don't do and how much do you, how much are you willing to get into bed with them? And God, they're so nasty. They're just, uh, yeah, I, I hate the idea of getting in bed with them that nasty as a as a government person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slimy, nasty, gross. <laughs> we could think of all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of descriptors for it. Um, so I'm just curious. You, so you you just recently started a podcast slash radio show. So this is on the radio, right? There in uh, yes, uh, just north of Denver in the Loveland area. Uh, 
And it's uh, uh, on a conservative uh, slash conspiracy, as as they describe themselves, uh, radio show. And so I have a once a week, one hour show uh, on the station on Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. And uh, yeah, I've, I haven't done this before. I've had a, a YouTube channel for a long time uh, and uh, well, not for a long time, for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, this is just kind of a, another medium to to try to get out there and and say, hey, folks, what we're all seeing and experiencing is a, is a little bit wacko. Let's kind of get back to being good people. And here's a system that might be handy for that. Uh, voluntarism. Yeah, voluntarism. Yeah, well, that's great. So I'm excited to see that. And you're releasing that in podcast. So that's nice for anybody who's not in the area. Um, yeah, I kind of I, I figure it's a three year or a three month contract is uh, how the the show is starting, and we'll see if uh, if the if there are people that like to hear what I have to say, then I'll continue, and if there aren't, uh, well, I still like to hear what I have to say, so I, I might not do it in the radio form, but I love hearing myself talk, so I I might still putting uh, keep putting out some content that I think would be helpful and and maybe reduce frequency, but uh, yeah, any which way I. I feel like I have a lot to learn, but I also have learned a good bit and I've studied a good bit. And if I can uh, help others along their journey, even uh, whether they're going to agree with me or disagree vehemently, I'd love to help stimulate the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll be following that. Um, so you say here in your, your bio that you sent me that you're an atheist and you mentioned that, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. I'm just curious the evolution of that, where that comes from, if you've always sort of been that way. Well, kind of the opposite. I was uh, reared in the back hills of Tennessee in a Mennonite community. Mennonite. And we went, yes, and my mother was a, a rolling stone kind of gal. She uh, she had been a, a, a Southern California uh, beach gal, just mainstream, normal person. And then uh, in her late 30s, uh, decided to have a child. That would be me. And then also, uh, quote unquote, found a God. And decided to get rid of the mainstream lifestyle, and uh, we ended up in Tennessee, where some relatives were. She learned about the Mennonites, and uh, when I was about a little less than two years old, we moved uh, to the Mennonite community, which is where I spent the next uh, fourteen or so years. And uh, so I had a strong Mennonite influences, various types, from really strict horse and buggy all the way up to the the wild and crazy people who would have cars. I mean, they'd obviously take the radio out of the car, but uh, <laughs> still drive motor vehicles. And uh, so I had that whole uh, range. And then we were also around uh, Seventh-day Adventists. We attended those churches sometimes, and sometimes the Southern Baptists. And we even lived in a Hooterite uh, or Hutterite, I don't know how to pronounce it, community for a while in Pennsylvania. Um, so I had a strong religious influence growing up. But then... Um, when I went to the uh, college uh, indoctrination camp, uh, I learned in junior college, I attended some classes that that were kind of the whole goal of college to open your mind and get you to become uh, less focused on what you've been taught before and, and get focused on a new area. And it worked on me. Uh, I looked into theism and, and monotheism and, and just kind of started contemplating and called myself an agnostic for many, many, many years, and then uh, finally decided, hey, that's kind of that's kind of wimpy. Um, I'm not anti-theist, uh, but I am atheist. Have you um, have you ever heard the term agnostic with an I? Agnostic? No. Um, I'm not really sure where it comes from. This is something I discovered a while ago. I I, I guess it falls under the agnostic umbrella, but it it it's its central argument is that 
until we can define God rationally, we can't really say either way whether or not he exists. So it's kind of a it's kind of a holding pattern type thing. It's like until we can actually rationally define this, we can't really base an opinion on it. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I looked up, I actually looked up the definition of, and I don't have it in front of me now, but I looked up the definition of theism, of theo. I looked all this stuff up and I said, no, if I if I look up the definition of this thing, I, I don't believe in, in theism, uh, just as I don't believe in... Uh, a lot of people who are theists find this uh, uh, offensive, but unicorns. Uh, and I just, I really put them on a, on exactly the same playing field that I, I'm not opposed to unicorns. I mean, they are so cool. My granddaughter just loves it. I like, I hope, I wish that one would leave some poop or, or some other evidence somewhere <laughs> that we could be like, Oh, Hey honey, this, they really do exist. I, I don't, I have nothing against unicorns or, or gods or anything like that. I just, I haven't ever seen any evidence existence. So, uh, that's why, and I kind of, it's, it's kind of like the state. Uh, I don't want to show the kids that are around that yet another person is saluting the flag or kneeling before something that can't be proven to exist. I, I just, I feel pretty strongly about setting that example to the people around me that, uh, that no, this, here's at least one person in this crowd that's going to stand up and say, no, I don't think the emperor is wearing any clothes. Yeah. Are you uh, are you familiar with Mark Stevens and his work? Yes, I've I've met him a few times at conventions and such, and I, yeah, his 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 live work uh, has never really I don't know it's 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 not been something I've gotten into. Yeah, it's interesting. It's you know as far as effectiveness, it, it it's it's really really the purpose. I mean, he calls it damage control when you're being attacked by bureaucrats for whatever, you know, speeding ticket or, or whatever it is. And I, and I've, I've been attacked, um, over, uh, our Airbnb that we ran for three years. Um, I'll have to send you a link to that, to that whole thing. But I, you know, I, so I, um, you know, learned a lot about his, you know, how you, um, pretty much in a Socratic way, you're questioning them on their facts and their evidence to support the claims they make about having jurisdiction over you just because you're physically located here, that sort of thing. So, it was interesting um, to to actually you know to 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 go after or not to defend yourself in that way against these bureaucrats and later you know civil prosecutor and then later you know stand in small claims court. Um, looking back, you know, I made mistakes <laughs> because you know I'm so green at it. So it, it it is one of those things where you do need to get a lot of experience because when you're in it with somebody. It's very stressful, right? It's very, you know, in your body is, you know, wants to fight or flight. You know, you get the adrenaline, you get the the cortisol, all that kind of stuff. And so it can be difficult to do what you need to do to successfully challenge the claims that they're making. But the whole purpose is to challenge their claims and make it obvious that the claim they're making of jurisdiction, that their code and their constitution applies to you, is basically arbitrary. And because it's arbitrary, it should be tossed out, right? Because their own code of ethics, their own code of conduct, their own rules prevents them from making allegations based on arbitrary. You know what I mean? So that's that's really the, his whole angle is let's get them to admit that their claim of jurisdiction is totally factless, totally baseless, that it's that it's arbitrary. Um, and, it, and it's really um, 
Because you, you, you talk about, you know, where's God? And that's that's kind of the question he brings is, where's where's your jurisdiction come from? You know, it, it, there's no evidence that you have jurisdiction over me. All you have is your written instrument, which is arbitrary. So just making that obvious and making that plain, um, you know, it it can go a long way if 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 they, you know, do want to save face. They don't want to be, excuse me, they don't want to be seen as obviously violating their own um their own codes of ethics and whatnot. And, you know, there's different, different levels of success and, and people have had success in different ways. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's interesting to, it's interesting to to hear about people's experience doing it, but it is kind of a long, and he calls it, he calls it an anarchist defense. Like it's, it's, it's an anarchist defense when you're being attacked by bureaucrats. It has nothing to do with what the law says, Right. This is this is what people like um, Irwin Schiff and Larkin Rose try to do. They're they're basically like, let's let's look at the law. What does the law say? Right. Is there any proof that the law, what the law says, you know, makes me a taxpayer or, or what have you? This is taking a step back and saying, do you have any evidence that the code, the law even applies? You know what I mean? So it's it's right. it's different than some of that other stuff. It's I think it's. I, I'm glad that I'm familiar with it. Um, I try to obviously avoid getting attacked to begin with, but if I am, then you know, cost-benefit analysis. It may be worth defending yourself on these these grounds. But it is it is kind of the a practical. It's kind of a practical way of taking that idea that governments don't really exist, states don't exist, citizens don't exist, taxpayers don't actually exist. It's all just arbitrary, made-up nonsense, and defending yourself along those lines when you are being attacked. So anyway, I was just curious if, if you were familiar yeah. with it. Well, I definitely support, not that anybody wants or needs my support, but I definitely think it's a great idea for anybody that's being attacked by bad guys to do whatever they, they feel will work best. Um, it's been my experience, having been on the other side, that that is a, I don't know, it, it's a playing field. And there are certain rules set up in that playing field that even if those rules don't exist, or even if they are wrongly interpreted, it's the umpire and it's the all the players on the field and the other the coaches and the the audience. Everybody in that whole stadium agrees with a certain thing. So even if you can find some arbitrary or not arbitrary, some real good true thing that <laughs> it wasn't a foul because three hundred years ago it was written in all capital letters or something. I the the umpire doesn't care the the right. referee whomever is is running the show they don't care and it's their playing field so for me um when i i had a guy with a uh, with a gun steal some money from me uh last year as i was traveling across wyoming because he didn't like that i was going 9 miles an hour faster than what a, a sign beside the highway said and okay so a guy stole i don't know 100 bucks or whatever from me and for me the headache of dwelling on it past that for letting him own any more of my time or thought. No, I just, I was had a thief steal some money from me just as I used to steal money from people. Um, but for me, I, I find more peace in saying, okay, I'm going to move on. What can I do to avoid this? I don't want to have long hair because I'll be more likely to get pulled over. I don't want to drive a junky car more likely to get pulled over. I don't want to be black. Uh, well, I can't help that. It turns out I, I, <laughs> I don't want to be black. I, I, well, it turns out I am 1% black. So, uh, but I don't get pulled over for it. Um, and, and that is, I mean, if you're, if you're a white 
middle-class to middle-aged person with short hair and no tattoos, you have greatly reduced your chances of being hassled uh, by the cops. And that's just how it is. And I don't think it's how it should be, but it, it is how it is. And so I, I was, uh, what do you call it, privileged to uh, have the skin color that I do. But all of those other things are choices that I, I can make and I can choose to say, okay, am I willing to wear a mask? No, no, I won't do that. But I will drive the speed at which they prefer. Um, I will stop at the stop signs as completely as they would like me to, just because I want to avoid avoid having them steal anything. So I'm not opposed to anybody making any decision that they can to try to avoid being a victim. That kind of, um, cause he said, um, <laughs> he said your skin's not black and obviously that that's helpful. One of the, one of the things that's just annoyed the crap out of me and I don't, maybe you agree or not. Um, especially with your perspective as a former police officer, one of the things that's really annoyed me about this entire, um, summer, right. This entire black lives matter thing is just how, how narrow minded everybody was, right? They they were framing it as a racial justice issue. They weren't framing it the way I would have preferred as a ruling class authoritarianism issue. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and uh, class issue. Well, yeah, yeah, it is a class issue, but not not the one, not a not a racial. If you know, race is a class, not a racial class issue. It's a it's a ruling class issue, ruling and and ruled. Um, I mean, yeah, and that is actually an interesting. I was just thinking about that yesterday. I, I was thinking about uh, another police department that I worked for in Southern California uh, in a wealthy town. I during field training, I was taught, you know, you're you're supposed to pull over certain people and not pull over other people, and. So I, I learned, oh, that car should pull over because it's a bunch of shaved head uh, guys of uh, Hispanic uh, appearance, and they're driving in their old Chevy Impala that's lowered. Well, they need to be pulled over and, and run their driver's license, see if they have warrants and such. And of course, if you have a car of four of people, uh, four people that fit this description, there's a good chance that one of them will have a warrant. Okay, well, now I learned that lesson. Then I go out and I see a couple of Hispanic guys in a car and I think, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to pull them over. Well, this is naive Mennonite boy here, you know, not knowing the the, the street <laughs> at all. And so then the, the field training officers, you know, why are you pulling these guys over? They're, they're just they don't even speak English. They're hardworking uh, Mexican folks that are just their dishwashers, like they're trying to head home to their families with a few bucks they have and don't. Don't give them a, a ticket for a broken tail light or whatever because that's could like really ruin their their lives. Don't mess with them. So what I what I noticed wasn't systemic racism. And just in this example, I'm talking about brown skin, not black skin, but it wasn't a problem with brown skinned people. It was a problem with brown skinned people of a certain class uh, that were part of the system. They were they were part of this this game that su- that supports people. It supports some people by giving them food and shelter by having them in jail. And then the people on the other side of the same game board get to have food and shelter by getting paid to put the other people in jail. And it's, so it's just a huge welfare scam, uh, the whole uh, criminal industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. I, I called a friend a, a few, uh, a couple of years ago. I, I have a buddy that uh, sold uh, weed. So he ended up and he was uh, anarchist very much against uh, the state and he was willing to stand up for it. So now he's doing, I don't know, three, four years for selling weed. And I, I was, I got a call from him and I wasn't there, left a message. And, and I get this message from this company 
that says in order to listen to this message, you have to pay 15 bucks. And, and this is the scam. And I'm sure that they, they went to the sheriff and said, you know, you can't have inmates in here making drug deals and ordering hits on people. So, so you know, we need to have this good, secure phone system so that that doesn't happen. Well, there's no way it costs it. Somebody's making some money. You know, some sheriff is is getting a nice Christmas party uh, paid for for all of his deputies by a concerned citizen who appreciates all they do. Or you know, there's something something back alleyish going on there. Yeah. Uh, and so there's that the people that sell the mattresses and the people that sell the, the all the uh, commissary stuff. It's a whole racket. Well, the people that sell the prisons. <laughs> yes, yes, and the people put people in prisons and giving parking tickets to the people who are in court getting put into jail. Uh, I mean, it's a whole huge gazillion uh, dollar money making system. Judges, clerks, jailers, uh, cops, dispatchers. And again, I, I completely believe that there are some bad people out there that do some bad things, and it's handy to have somebody you can call and say, "Hey, those guys just took something from me." We go track them down and get it back or beat them up or whatever. I, like, like, okay, I can see that there could be room for, for security company. Yeah. But have it be a, a public law enforcement. It's just, it's just not a good idea. It's not a good system. It's not working. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not working, working for most for of some, us. Isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's working really well for the people that sell mattresses to, to jails. Um, this is kind of on the spot. Um, and you may need to think about it. I'm just curious, what, what is the most messed up thing you saw as a cop uh, from from your vantage point? Not not from people doing, but from your fellow thin blue line doing. Mm, I think it would be an incident uh, in a jail during my field training. And uh, my field training officer uh, saw a uh, an inmate do something that was unacceptable. And that was... While medications were being handed out by the nurse, the inmate flushed the toilet. And that made a loud noise, which makes it hard for the other inmates to hear their bunk number and their last name called out. And it was just kind of everybody knows you don't flush toilets during medical call. And this inmate did it. And and of course, I'd, I'd never been in jail before, so I didn't know this rule. But evidently, this inmate didn't either. Uh, he didn't speak English. So the training officer brought him into a, a little area in the the cell uh, the cell there are about 250 inmates in each of these buildings and you could see them all from the center pod and there's a little hallway there that was cement block that nobody could see into the inmates couldn't see into so the deputy and another deputy brought that inmate in and beat him up and basically were kicking him and he was laying on the floor and they're kicking him and you know telling him not to flush the toilet and then they put him back out into the the room so that was a i, I think one of the most disturbing things that I saw because because I thought, you know, that guy didn't deserve to get roughed up. Now, if the deputies hadn't done it, he would have probably gotten beat up by the inmates because he violated like everybody wanted this rule, this social norm. Um, and it was the only way that that dumb people can communicate it is by initiating violence. So this deputy initiating violence, if he hadn't, yeah, the inmates would have probably beat him up and said, hey, don't flush the toilet when we're we're doing meds. Um, so that was very disturbing, probably the the most blatant uh, abuse of power that I saw, but actually the follow-up was even more disturbing to me. Um, I went to a, a buddy or not even a buddy, a guy from the, that I went through the, the six month Academy with, and I went to him and I said, Hey, uh, I, I saw this It's normal. Like, 
I, I thought we weren't supposed to beat people up if we didn't have a reason. Like, can we just pull them aside and beat them up to teach them a lesson? Is that is that what we do? It doesn't even write. And he said, hey, you know, just just don't worry about it. He says, uh, you know, you, you haven't been here long enough because he had worked in a, a not a deputy position, but a smaller position in the jail for a couple of years before and kind of knew how things went. And so, so he says, hey, yeah, just don't worry about it. He says, you know, in two years, I'll bet you if we sit and have this conversation, you're going to agree that, yeah, the deputy kind of did what he had to do for the unfortunate situation that we're in and just, you know, let it go. Well, the following day, when I went into the the deputy's dining room, chow area, I started to sit down at a table with several other deputies. And they're like, no, you, you can go sit over there and pointed to another table. So I had to go sit at a table by myself. I was being ostracized by the group. And I discovered that I had been given a rat jacket, which in jail is if you rat somebody else, uh, if you rat somebody out, then you are given this, you know, this imaginary uh, jacket or file or, or folder, and, and you're considered to be a rat. So I didn't go to a supervisor. I went to a buddy and said, hey, is this cool? Oh, it is cool. Okay, I'm going to let it go. And then I was still ostracized for a week or two and was never trusted by most of the deputies because I had a, a rat jacket. Um, and it, it was that was even more concerning than the actual incident itself was my training, in essence. I had been conditioned to never, ever stand up or even talk to anybody else about it. Well, geez, that, that, that whole situation just sounds like gang custom. It, and it absolutely is. Right. I mean, isn't absolutely that what they do in is. gangs and shit like that? Absolutely. And there's and that's what I was in. I was in a gang. And yeah. the particular gang I was in had a contract with uh, other people in power to provide protection against the other gang. So and, and at the time, this is back in the 90s, uh, I understand that it took about 100 grand a year to keep a cop on the street. Now I'm sure it's more. But the cop doesn't get paid that much. But between training and insurance and their vehicle and, and all the other stuff, it, it was taking about a hundred grand a year to keep a cop on the street. And so I didn't even notice the irony that I was accepting each year, or I was causing a hundred thousand dollars to be stolen through taxation from other people so that I could protect people from having stuff stolen from them. Now I look at it and it's just so silly and ridiculous. But at the time, if you had brought that up, I would have thought you were just a complete wacko. I would have just completely ignored what you had to say, rolled my eyes and and walked away. I, I didn't get it at that point. Yeah, you you had to you had to discover it on your own. And that's that's really the challenge because you know, we talk about, you know, Ron Paul and other people talk about how we need to educate people, but if somebody doesn't want to be educated, there's no way to do that. All all you can really do, like what he did, is he just stood up there on stage and just told his truths and it fascinated a certain amount of people. And then once they began that disillusionment process, then they really educated themselves, right? By by digging in and taking that initiative. You know, so it's like, you know, I record my podcast, but you know, I'm not standing on a national stage with with an audience that is uh, not, you know, my audience is like looking for it, you know. So I, I, I recognize right. that I'm mostly preaching to the choir. <laughs> but for me, it's right. like every morning I, I sit down and I record something and it's sort of my release. You know, this is this is hobby for me and it's a way for me to just sort of unload 
And then it's also a way for me to, you know, to meet new people and to have chats like this. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, preaching to the choir, ultimately, I, I, you know, I, I, I used to be more active like on Facebook and stuff, and I'm, I'm not now. I kind of left that. I'm somewhat active on Reddit. You know, I kind of scroll through, and if there's something I want to say, something about, I'll, I'll drop a line. Sometimes that sometimes that starts a little argument or whatever. I'm not really, not really. Um, it is really kind of like a one liner type of thing. Sometimes I veer into the trollish area. I don't know. It's just, it's just all I can do to keep my sanity. Sometimes. <laughs> I, but, I hear you. And you know, though, I think that you and I, and probably a lot of other people that are in our position, we have lived some life and then we've discovered this thing and we say, you know, that nobody else is thinking, or very few people are thinking this, but this really makes sense. I'd like to share it with some other people because it's it's brought some clarity to my life. We tend to go out and want to just spread the word. And I think, and this is true for me, I don't know about you, but for a long time, my hope has been that I could say to somebody on the book of faces, or if it's not social media, if it's in person, whatever, I could say, yeah, but taxation is theft. And they'd say, oh, geez, you know, I'd never thought of it that way. You're right. Where can I get my card to be a card carrying voluntarist? And that was kind of the goal. And I kind of came to realize it actually helped. Earlier this year, I went to a, a Candles in the Dark uh, seminar with Larkin Rose in Larkin Rose, uh, Acapulco. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought I already knew all of his stuff and, and like, you know, we're, we're casual acquaintances and I've, you know, publishing his journals and such. And, and, and so we kind of know each other some, and I thought I already know everything he has to say, but yeah, I'll go anyway. And I think the biggest epiphany that I had was that your goal on this podcast and, and I think, and, and mine and in the things that I do, it's not to get somebody to make that hundred percent switch at that moment. It is to create that moment of cognitive dissonance that the person thinks about. And then three months later, they're thinking, wait a minute, that guy said that he was stealing $100,000 a year from people so that he would keep other people from, wow, that kind of, yeah, that is what cops do. And then they drop it for another three months and then they have another thought. And then they see a dollar bill that somebody stamped taxation is theft on and they go, oh yeah. And then... A year or two or three later, when they get a speeding ticket or they try to start a business and the government shuts them down, they then will say, hey, well, look a little bit more into this. And then they have thousands of hours of your work and my work and Larkin's work and Carl Watner's work and Patrick Smith and all the other people that are out there putting forth effort and putting out this content uh, for hungry eyes. So I think we're doing a good thing, even though we might not see it immediately. Uh, I think we're doing good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's good to remember that. Um, my, my, you know, primarily it's, it's a, it's a labor of love. It's, it's me doing it for me. So, I mean, if I, if I try to focus on, you know, who my, whose, whose minds, hearts and minds am I changing? Well, <laughs> I'm probably gonna, I'm probably gonna lose motivation. So I can't think about that. I've got to just do it for me. <laughs> so that's, that's what I've done. But yeah. Yeah. And we each do our own little thing. Like I started a meetup group and we usually have anywhere from eight to a dozen people show up and I live in a tiny town uh, and other people have done that in other places. Well, that's just a little tiny thing, but we're creating community. That, that's one little thing that I could do as one little thing that you, you can do. You can make a comment to somebody about something just in passing and, and we can each do a little thing and uh, yeah, we can hope that at some point it'll 
It'll make a difference. And if not, heck, we're speaking our truth and we're having fun and we're treating people well and we're loving life. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, you know, there there is an audience, kind of a captive audience, if you will, that we do have. And that's that's our own families and our children and the way we raise them and the the, the norms and the conventions that we established in, in, in our households, the culture that we create for them, a culture of self-ownership and autonomy and non-aggression. Hopefully, I mean, that's my whole theory is that that will eventually spread into larger society, you know, as, as we, as we build that, that culture of liberty. And that's really what one of my books is about, but I love so, that. So there's I that too. That that's, that's, that's obviously a big part of my work. Also, I've got three kids. So. Yeah. And I think that's actually a good strategy. I mean, hasn't that been the, uh, the Mennonite or the Amish, the Catholic, the, the Mormon strategy is, well, if we can't, we're going to go out and try to convert people also, but let's also have about 11 of them per family that we can bring up in the correct way and keep them from departing from it. And uh, I mean, that's, that's right out of the scriptures. I mean, that's, that's kind of a good strategy for repopulating the earth with peaceful, good, voluntary folks. So, so here it is, here it is, Shepherd. Let's start a church, the church of voluntarism and stoicism. There we go. I love it. You know, I saw that on the Book of Faces. Somebody has the Church of Voluntarism. I love it. And I've actually thought about it. That would provide certain protections under the current system. Maybe. And I'm already an ordained minister through the Universal Life Church. I, I think I'd be willing to uh, hop denominations and uh, go with that. And that that could provide certain uh, protections. <laughs> you know, that that's interesting. I, I remember reading it at voluntarius.com. Um, I don't know if Carl Wattner wrote it or somebody else wrote it, but it was it was this bit about how and I don't know if this was if this is state law or federal law or what, but something about how churches can title and and license vehicles. And he provided a way like instructions on a specific church up in Oregon or something on contacting them to become a member and then putting and then sending your vehicle registration through them and then they send you a license plate and that's what you put on your car instead of your state license plate. Oh interesting. I don't, I don't know it it's it seemed interesting it seemed like maybe an interesting experiment to try but then I thought about the hassle of getting stopped everywhere you go and having to deal with right. the cops and so then I was like maybe maybe I'm I'm not going to go this route but I don't know I was just curious yeah. if you saw yeah. that. No I I haven't seen that that's uh I, it's a neat idea. And I mean, it brings up that whole dilemma that I keep having of, of how much do you work within the state's framework and how much do you, uh, the theme of my next show is just say no, taking Carl Hess's advice of just never submit, just stand up strong, throw your shoulders back and just say, no, not going to do that. And I, I and I, I don't know, I, I can't certainly put anybody else down for for choosing one strategy strategy or the other uh, a pal of mine has spent a lot of days in jail because he he got pretty uh uh adamant about not having a government driver's license or license plates and so he had his own based on the it wasn't the sovereign man movement but one of the you know your name's capitalized and therefore you're a, a corporation because there's corporate fringe on the maritime flag in the courtroom kind yeah. of thing and and i love him to death and I just don't think it's like, as a cop, you don't ever think that you are beat by somebody like that. You might not pull that car over just because you don't want to deal with a whack job that's going to try to talk to you about his name is not in capitals, so he's not a corporation, he's a person. Like, 
he's not actually making a point. You think he's a complete whack job. Yeah. But you might leave him alone just because he's annoying, but he would also, you know, you'd also leave him alone if he was annoying for other reasons. If he just had a, if he, if he spit a lot when he spoke and just had a lot of spittle coming out, like we'd leave him alone for that reason too. It's not an intellectual reason that you'd leave him alone or a legal reason. It's just annoyance. You know, (laughs) as you're, as you're talking, I just, my mind goes in crazy places sometimes, but I'm just thinking it, it might be a good idea to keep some sort of some sort of fart smelling stink bomb device in your car. <laughs> and as soon as you get pulled over, you release it so that when you roll down the window, he just gets hit with this stink smell. That's obviously not chemical. It's it. obviously just like a, a regular fart smell and just <laughs> or or just like that natural homeless person body odor type smell, you know, our natural smell when we haven't showered for a month, something along those lines to where the cop just doesn't want, you know, doesn't want to deal with you and just lets you go. (laughs) I like that. idea. Hey, I heard a good strategy last night. I was interviewing Nathan who ran on, uh, Anarchapoco for years and his wife, they live in Mexico and his wife got stopped by the cops. And as they walk up, she plops one of her three kids uh, onto her breast and begins uh, breastfeeding the baby. And the cop walks up and looks through the window and he immediately doesn't even say hello to her. He turns around, waves everybody else off and they all drive away. <laughs> so maybe being the person that you don't want to walk up to the car and stay there, whether it's through stink or discomfort or karma or whatever it is, maybe that's a good strategy. Yeah. 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 There's, there's, there's gotta be a lot of different, a lot of different things that we could, we could think of. <laughs> and and implement to 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 repel the cops in a in a peaceful way. <laughs> yeah. And I in you know if you think about the 80/20 rule which I just love that whole Pareto's principle thing in life. If you look at the 80/20 rule, what what are the 20% of things that you can do that will reduce your probability of getting hassled by the cops by 80%? And for me, I enjoy um having mind altering substances but I choose one that the state's okay with. I like martinis and beer. Now, it would be much healthier for me if I smoked weed, but I have never touched the stuff. No, actually I did. I rolled a little hash ball thingy uh, for some friends, but I, I didn't smoke it or anything. Uh, or I, I guess that's what you would call what they do, crumbling it or whatever. I, I've just never gotten into any illegal, according to the state, drugs. And so that is one of those, that 20% of little things. I can control that stoicism here. I can control whether or not I'm around marijuana or use marijuana. Well, the state doesn't like it. So, hey, I can, I can avoid that. What the cops look for, at least years ago, they look for people with tattoos. I can control that. I can refrain from getting something that I didn't want anyway, but I can refrain from getting tattoos. I can not uh, look like a scuzz bucket. I can look professional. I can... I can work hard enough to have a car that's not dirt baggy car looking. Um, those are all things within my control that have a greater than 80% reduction in the probability that I'm going to get hassled. And then following the minor, minor petty laws that are their excuse to stop a person, those are really easy too. And so now I have like a 95% probability that I am not going to be the person that is target today. Should I have to do all those things? No, of course not. Not in a perfect society, but that's not where we live. So I might as well do the things that are within my power to reduce contact yeah. with folks that I don't want to be in contact with. That, that's that's kind of where my my voluntarism is in conflict with my stoicism. 
Because everything you just talked about is a very stoic approach to this, right? You have within your control certain things and you can minimize based on your own choices and the control you have, you can minimize exposure to the state. And But the voluntarism is like telling me <clears throat> these laws, these things are wrong and I need to resist. <clears throat> and, you know, so I got my voluntarism is like, no, resist, do this, do that. Um, and I guess the agorist in me as well. But then you've got the stoic. It was like, it's not worth it. <laughs> you know, so I was like, right, you, right. you got this thing playing out in my own mind all the time. It's crazy. And, you know, I deal with that, too. And I, and I don't know what the correct answer is. And I don't know that there is a correct answer. Like up until fairly recently, I've always believed that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. It's just it's plain old wrong to walk up to a two year old kid and stab him with a, a, a knife. That's just plain old wrong. However, the more uh, the moral uh, subjectivist would say to me, really, what, what makes that wrong? I'd say, well, we'll all agree that that's wrong. Would you do that? Well, no. he'd say no. Of course I wouldn't. That's a, that's a, I think it's a horrible thing to do, but, but that's just my opinion, and it's just your opinion. So that's something I've been really thinking about, and I want to explore more. I'm actually planning to have Yaakov. Uh, Yaakov is a, uh, an activist in voluntarist movement, anarcho-capitalist movement, and uh, I'm planning to have him on the show to get into that more because I'm, I still really want to believe that some things are just plain old, this is what it is, and morality is not subjective. However, I'm getting a lot of, I'm really having trouble keeping that old belief, uh, listening to Carl Hassan. He was, well, no, you do what you got to do. Like, it's up to you. It's, it's not like you can do something wrong. You just, you try it and you go, oh, yeah, I tried being a part of the libertarian party for 35 years and yeah, turns out that didn't work. So now I'm writing some books and next time maybe I'll beat my head against a brick wall and yeah, maybe none of those things will do any good. Um, but it's, it's not like I'm, there's somebody up there judging me for being right or wrong for having done them. I, I don't know. That's that's kind of a new kick I'm on is trying to trying to hold on to my old dogmatic belief in objective morality. And gosh, I'm having a tough time at it. We'll see where I am a month or two from now. Yeah. Well, all right, man. This is great. We're coming up on an hour or so, so I'll I'll let you go. Um, it, uh, send me in the in the chat some of your your links and whatnot, and, I, and I'll link to them. Um, as well, and I'll, I'll link to your podcast and whatnot because people can subscribe to that. They don't have to live in, in Colorado to do that. So Sounds great. Sounds great. I, I really appreciate you having me on, and thank you for all your hard work and paving the path and uh, sharing your version of the truth, which happens to coincide with mine. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Bye. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.